You guys ready? Yes. Are you ready? Yes. So this is one of those Sundays. This is one of those Sundays where I very naively wish that we could just begin the message this way. Now, where were we? I would love to pick up right where we left off last Sunday. With the same vibe in the room, the same energy, the same level of engagement, the same content kind of front and center. But the truth of the matter is, a lot of week has happened since the last time that we were together. And some of the things that were at the front of your mind when we were together last Sunday, they've moved to the back of your mind. And some of you wouldn't be able to find them. And some of the things that represent your week, your jobs, your family, your mortgage, all the things... That they have now come to the front of your mind. And I have to somehow pull us back into the discussion that we were having. Because I promised you that there was a part of last week's message that we just did not have time to explore. But that if we came back next Sunday, we would dive down into that one very important part of the discussion. So in the attempt to try to bring you back to somewhere similar to where we were last Sunday, let's, let's just do a real quick review so we are in the middle of a series where we're talking about the sovereignty of God. And what is that? And how does that work? And how do we make sense of it? And so some of the things that have been important through this discussion so far is that sovereignty as a concept or an idea means to be absolute in authority and unparalleled in supremacy. So when we talk about the sovereignty of God, what we're saying is that God is absolute in authority. He makes the rules. Whether we like the rules or not, he makes the rules about how things are going to happen, how things are supposed to be, and the buck stops with him. And he's unparalleled in supremacy. He has no equals, as we just saying, no equals, no rivals. There's no other God. There's no competition. He's unparalleled in supremacy. And so if we kind of net out what we're beginning to understand about the sovereignty of God so far, we, we come to like a simple definition is that God can do whatever he pleases. Now we understand he will do what he pleases in relationship or what's consistent with his character and his nature. He can't violate who he is, but he can do whatever he pleases and he doesn't, he doesn't um, sit under our judgment about how he chooses to do things. And so we've come to this point of where we understand a little bit about sovereignty. And it sounds like this, that to be sovereign means that God is in charge. He's in charge of the universe. And if he's in charge, then we, we assume that he's in control. And this right here is a fundamental aspect of our faith as Christians. We believe that a sovereign God of the universe is in control of what's happening. You with me? We believe that God is in control. And then stuff like this happens. Awful stuff. Horrible stuff. Tragic stuff. And sometimes these things happen and literally tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people's lives are impacted by this kind of chaos. And we step back and our heart goes out to entire groups of people whose lives have been tragically um, interrupted by this kind of mess. And sometimes these things happen and they happen to us. 
or they happen to people that we love. And we step back and we scratch our head and we go, but wait a second. I thought God was in control. I thought God was sovereign. I thought he was in charge. And, and we have a really hard time making this kind of stuff fit with our faith and what we believe to be true about God. And today we're going to wrestle a little bit more with trying to make sense of that. And it's not easy. And there aren't simple answers. But I believe there's answers. So we're working from this sort of presupposition, this premise that God is sovereign. He's in charge. And some of the things that we've learned over the last couple of weeks as we've been in this discussion is that, you know, God is divine. He has no limits. Eternal spirit, infinite being. He's powerful. Big theological term, he's omnipotent, meaning he has no limits to what he can do. He's righteous. The word righteous simply means this, is that God does what is right all the time. And he's just. It's his nature. It's what he's about. It's who he is. And we've also discovered that God is compassionate. And he's gracious and he's merciful and he's faithful. We sort of have the kind of the tender side of God and we have sort of the tough side of God. And, and we like this image of God and we like this understanding of God. But sometimes we forget that there's a problem. There's a tension. It's like there's this cosmic wrench thrown into the works. And we talk about it in terms of this, Satan and sin and this remarkable freedom that God's given to us as human beings is the power to choose. And this is, this is a real part of the life that we live. And we have to somehow figure out how to make sense of these things in relationship to these things. And I told you last Sunday we, we would talk more about this today. Now, to talk about just that red circle, we, we could take an entire year to try to unpack all that's in there. Especially if I tried to show you every chapter and verse throughout the Bible that teaches about those things. It, I just can't. Not in the time that I have. Or that you would even sit through. So really the best that I can do is provide a summary. It's not because you can't handle the complex discussion. It's just that we don't have the time for it all. Does that make sense? So let's kind of break it down a little bit. Let's, let's begin with the discussion about Satan. Let me give you a little short history of what we learn about Satan from the Bible. Now, let's talk about our Bible for a minute. You have to begin with the understanding that the Bible is not an encyclopedia and the Bible is not a textbook. It, it wasn't created for that. It wasn't designed that way. So it's not like you can just go to the table of contents in the Bible and find the topic that you're interested in. And then, you know, there's a hundred pages to that topic. You just read those pages and you figure that all out. It's not how the Bible works. It's not, it's not designed or laid out in a chronological fashion like this happened at this time and then this happened at this time and then this ha it's not like that it's a collection 
of inspired writings, their letters, their records, their documents. So really what's helped me in my own study of the scriptures is to think of the Bible as a puzzle. And there's pieces of the puzzle scattered all throughout the writings of the scriptures. And some of the pieces of the puzzle are found in the Old Testament. Some of them are found in the New Testament. Some of the pieces of the puzzle occur in poetic literature. And some of them occur in didactic literature. And some of them are part of history. And some of them are part of people. And so what you do is you pull together the pieces of certain topics. And then you start putting them together to the best of your ability. And the picture comes into focus. Does that make sense? So if you take the pieces that we have throughout the scriptures that tell us something about the nature, the identity, the work of Satan, the picture starts to come into focus. And I want to tell you a little bit about some of the highlights of what we learn about all that. And, and I want to begin here. So what we know about the picture that the scriptures provide us about Satan is that Satan was before he was the evil one that we associate him to be. He was an angelic being created by God to serve in support of God's ambitions, God's plans. He was perfect. He was righteous. He was just. He was an angelic being created by, because God can't create evil. He created a perfect angelic being along with a host of angels. And that original angel that was created, he, his name was Lucifer. We put together the pieces and what we learn, again, you, you may not buy this, but I'm just putting together the pieces. That at some point in celestial history, the cosmic past, Lucifer, this angel created by God, he, he started looking sideways at God like, I, I would like to be more like him. I kind of like what he's doing. And Satan in his pride or Lucifer in his pride, he's like, I, I, I want to be absolute in authority. I want to make the rules. And, and he wanted to be unparalleled in supremacy. He, he wanted the worship that God was due. And God said, I'm sorry, but there's not room for two. I'm the one and only God. And so because of Lucifer's pride, he was dismissed from heaven. He was dismissed from the presence of God. And he took a whole host of angels who were loyal to him. Those are the pieces that we have. Now, at some point, God creates the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, verse 1. And that the crowning achievement of that creation is he creates human beings. And he bestows on human beings the power to choose. In other words, God, God will not force someone to love him or obey him. He gives human beings the choice to love him or to obey him. And what we learn from the pieces of the puzzle is that in the power to choose, Satan, Lucifer, he took advantage of the opportunity. And he led the first human beings to question the intentions of God toward them. Like God was withholding something from them. God was hiding something from them. And Satan created this doubt and this question. And human beings with the power to choose made a decision to do not what God had instructed them to do, but to do what they wanted to do. 
And what we learn is that when God's pushed out of anything, the vacuum that's created results in sin, evil. God didn't create evil. It's what happens when he's pushed out. And Satan took the opportunity of that occasion to appoint himself as the ruler of this earth. Now, it's interesting. This is a very important part of the puzzle. When God creates the first human beings, he says to them, I now give you the authority and the power to rule or to take care of this earth. It's like God stepped back and said, all right, I will rule the universe. You can rule the affairs of this earth that I've created for you. And when Satan stepped into that situation, caused human beings to choose sin instead of God, then Satan appointed himself as the ruler of this earth. Again, you might think, that sounds crazy, bizarre, maybe. I'm just sharing with you the pieces of the puzzle. You still with me? Okay. So now we have a dilemma. We have a dilemma where God creates this beautiful universe, this amazing existence for human beings, and Satan takes the opportunity to corrupt it. And so it's interesting how Satan is portrayed throughout the scriptures. He's portrayed as a deceiver. He's portrayed as a liar. He's portrayed as one who's, who's hell-bent on corrupting anything that's good because he's resisting anything that is about God. So it's interesting how we read this. Throughout the scriptures, Satan is recognized as having the power and the authority to deceive to corrupt, to subjugate, to, you know, capture human beings, human beings through the ways of evil in the world. This is what he's allowed to to do. And so it's interesting how Satan is spoken of throughout the scriptures. This is just a couple of examples. In John chapter 16, Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world, the current world, the present world, not the total world, but this world in which we live. Ephesians chapter 2, he's referred to as the prince and the power of the air. That he has enormous influence on the systems of this world and how it operates. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he's referred to as the God of this age. Not the God, not the only God, but the one who has power, spiritual influence on this age, the times in which we live. So it's interesting, I was doing some research on all this. I read an article and the author of the article quotes a commentator. And unfortunately, he doesn't give credit to the commentator that he was referring to. So I don't know who exactly wrote this, but I thought this was interesting. The phrase, God of this age, indicates that Satan is the major influence. Okay, you paying attention? Now listen to this, because this is the world and the times in which we live. This is the culture and the society that our lives are enmeshed in. The God of this age indicates that Satan is the major influence on the ideals and ideas, opinions, goals, hopes, and the views of the majority of people, a majority who largely reject the truths of God. His influence encompasses the world's philosophies, 
which we are getting hammered with these days, the world's philosophies, the educational system, even commerce. The thoughts, ideas, speculations, and false religions of the world are under his control and have sprung up from his lies and his deceptions. But he is not sovereign. Satan is not sovereign. He only influences this world, the systems in which we live, or the present evil systems of opposition to God. In other words, this was what I thought was so helpful. He is leading a rebellion against God. This is the nature of the work of Satan in our lives. He's leading a rebellion against everything that God is about and what God stands for. And so we learned some more about Satan through the pictures of the puzzles, pieces of the puzzle that we find in the scripture. One important one, I want you to understand that God and Satan are not equals. God created Satan. They are not equals. Satan is neither divine nor is he sovereign. They are, however, locked in a cosmic battle for human beings. They're fighting over you and me. They're fighting over our hearts and our minds. They're fighting over our loyalties. They're fighting over our values, our priorities, our way of life. But they are not equals. They are adversaries. This is what we learn about Satan from the scriptures. You guys doing okay? Got awfully quiet on me. So let's talk a little bit about sin. Sin is such an interesting topic, and we terribly underestimate the nature of sin in our lives or in our world. So I, I, I tend to think of sin as kind of like a moral or ethical cancer. And it's metastasized throughout the entire human condition. Everything that sin touches is compromised. I, I like to think of sin perhaps as like a volatile toxic chemical and that whatever it touches it corrodes it's like a poison and when we drink in the nature of sin it impacts the human heart all of our hearts not the muscle inside of our chest but the part of us that is us it's where we think it's what we value it's what we believe that central station of who we are as human beings when sin gets in there it wrecks it it breaks it it corrupts and corrodes it and beautiful things good things healthy things wonderful things that God designed when they are impacted by sin they change so what we have is that we have God in his love and his grace and his mercy creates this amazing universe and human beings and gives them the opportunity to make their way but Satan seizes an opportunity. He misleads human beings and they make a choice to push God out and sin inhabits the world that God created. And so suddenly we find ourselves now in this situation. We find ourselves in a world that's impacted by greed and lust and hatred and revenge, anger, fear. I mean, the king of the crop here, selfishness, 
It just runs rampant in the human condition. Jealousy, impatience, just the insecurity of how we devalue ourselves and how it makes us feel as we make our way through life. Manipulation, intimidation, pride, corruption, control, arrogance, injustice, envy. This this is just some of the things on the list that have impacted what God created. I mean, let's just take, like, take one thing, one example. The, perhaps one of the most beautiful things that God creates and designs and he gives to human beings. You ready? Let's talk about sexual intimacy. God designed and created sexual intimacy and he gave it to human beings for a purpose. It had a purpose, it had a design, and it came with a blessing. And the purpose of sexual intimacy was not just to make babies. It was to be a powerful emotional and physical and spiritual connection between a man and a woman in marriage as a way to cultivate and nurture intimacy in their relationship with one another. And then sin happens. And it corroded it. And it messed it all up. And now we're look, looking at and living in a world where we see the dramatic impact of the sin that has entered our world. Things like this where people misuse and abuse and completely ignore the design that God created for it. And people get hurt. Hearts get broken. Marriages get destroyed. Young women and young boys get sold into a slavery it wrecks them for the rest of their life without the grace of God to somehow restore it. God made something beautiful. And it was sin that made it something to be so ugly. So, so God didn't create evil. Satan is responsible for that sort of thing. And his influence through the nature of sin has created in us that at times we choose through very selfish motives to do the things that are not in keeping with God's design. And this, this is an explanation for how our lives and our world got to be the way that it is. In a world where sin runs rampant in every expression of life, the harsh reality is that sometimes innocent Good and valuable people get caught in the backwash. And that's hard for us to reconcile. It's hard for us to watch evil run rampant in our world and sometimes children get caught in the backwash. And that seems so unfair to us. And it makes us angry. Or people, good people, people with well-intentioned, people who are making a contribution, valuable people who are offering something to society. And sometimes they get caught in the backwashes of the impact of evil in our world. And I want you to know something. Satan doesn't care about that. In fact, he glories in it. It's what he's about. He loves to watch chaos. He loves to watch corruption. He loves to watch brokenness happen. To him, it's the smell of victory. But that kind of stuff breaks God's heart. Because it's not anything close to what he had intended for us. What he wanted for you. 
And this helps at least put some sort of perspective to the things that we can't quite reconcile about a sovereign God that's unfortunately been impacted by a universe, a a world in which we live where sin runs rampant. So probably just like me, you ask the question, well, why doesn't God just do something about it? Why doesn't God just step in right now and put an end to all the awful things that Satan is instigating in our world? Or is that just me? No, we, we, we ask this question. And then you look at me to come up with an answer. And I have to tell you a couple things. One, I'm not God. And two, he never asked me. He never called me and said, hey, Paul, I'm thinking about doing something. It's big. I, it's really big. What do you think? He never consulted with me. He never let me into that discussion. So I, I don't know that I can answer for him. So what do I have left? I have the same thing that you have left. I have some clues that appear throughout the scriptures. And if I put them together, a picture starts to come in, into focus. So the best I can offer you is what I've, what I've concluded from the clues that I have. You want to hear that? Yes. The best that I can tell is that when God decides to put an end to all that Satan is doing, you ready? Yes. Everybody who's loyal to him are going to be hauled into God's courtroom to receive the due sentence along with him. And some of those people are your friends and your neighbors and your classmates and your relatives. Some of them are you. Because you've rejected the one thing that God has provided as a protection against it all. And that is Jesus Christ. So when God finally does what he's going to do, and he will, I've said in every message so far in the series, just because he hasn't doesn't mean he can't or that he won't. It just hasn't happened yet. And that comes from a heart of compassion. Peter, one of the early apostles, he he wrote several letters to the early church. In one of those letters, he writes this to the the early Christians. Above all, at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. People go, I don't believe any of that stuff. That Christian stuff, that's ridiculous. That's fables and fairy tales. Scoffers will come and they'll scoff. They'll follow after their own evil desires. 
And they'll say, where is this coming that he promised? I mean, you Christians, always talking about Jesus coming back and God coming back and making everything right. Where is this coming? Where is it? Ever since our ancestors have died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Nothing's changing. The world's the same. Peter writes, but don't forget one thing. Dear friends, don't forget one thing. That with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like a day. Like God really understands time very differently than us. He's not temporal. He pays no attention to that which is temporary. He's eternal and infinite. He doesn't wear a watch. And time is passing exactly in keeping with his redemptive game plan. A day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. But listen, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness. And here it is. Instead, he is patient Kind, compassionate, merciful. He is patient with you because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants all to come to repentance, to come to a place of acknowledging the enormous impact of sin on our life and our need to be rescued from our sinful condition before a holy and righteous God. And that, that is all about Jesus. His death and resurrection Securing for us the forgiveness of our sin and the gift of eternal life through the promised salvation that comes by to anybody who will place their faith in Jesus, the Son of God. And God's saying, I'll wait. I'll wait a little bit longer. I'll wait another century if I have to, because there's people who still have yet to make that decision. It's serious. The day of the Lord, when, when God finally steps into motion, the day of the Lord, it'll come like a thief. You won't be expecting it. There won't be headlines awaiting it. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will disappear with a roar. And the elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare for all to see. And since everything will be destroyed in this way, Peter writes to the Christians, what kind of people ought we to be? How should we go about living our life? You ought to live holy, godly lives, devoted to God and his ways as you look forward to the day of God. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to the return of God, when he makes all things right, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless. And here it is, at peace with him. reconciled to him in good standing with him through what Jesus Christ has provided. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience, it's about salvation. It's not about neglect. It's not about that he doesn't care. It's not about that he doesn't have a cure or a solution. He's simply offering you, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, your relatives, the opportunity to be rescued from the coming wrath of a holy and righteous God. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, 
Be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. It's serious. And God in his grace and God in his compassion and God in his mercy is just waiting He's just waiting so that all may come to repentance. So I leave you with this. Two verses of the Bible that, could, that, that, that stand in contrast to each other and they bring us comfort and they bring us hope. We read this. Peter writes, be alert. Like pay attention to what's happening, what you're hearing and seeing in this world that we live. Be alert and, and take it seriously. This isn't funny. Be of sober mind. Why? Because you have an enemy. Your enemy, the devil, that's Lucifer, that's Satan. The devil prowls around. He uses a picture like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's looking for the occasions to gobble up the faith that you have. Peter writes, resist him. Stand firm in your beliefs as a Christian, as a follower of Christ. But, but know this, know this, the greater is he who's in you when we place our faith in Christ, the spirit of God comes to live inside of us. Greater is he who is in you than he that runs this world. It's serious. We live in the comfort and the security and the hope that God lives within us in the person of his Holy Spirit, but we are still vulnerable to that which Satan would love to accomplish in our lives by pulling us away from our loyalty to the one Savior that we have. That, my friends, is a lot to think about. And if you come back next Sunday, I'll tell you a little bit more. But I can tell you this. The choice that you make is eternal in proportion. There's serious things at stake. And when you make the choice to obey God by placing your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, you'll be on the winning side of history. With that, let me ask you to stand together. Let me pray for you. Father, there's a lot here to think about. And we don't even begin to understand it all. But thank you. Thank you for your grace and your love to give us some clues. To give us some truths that we can kind of build a faith around. We thank you for that. Father, be at work in our hearts as we wrestle with these things of real life. And may we always come back to choosing you to be trustworthy. Thank you for your amazing grace and love toward us. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen.